The Gospels are filled with stories of people like Mary, people whose lives were changed. That first Jesus generation, those first followers of Jesus Christ, when he hit the earth and revealed himself and said, I've come to seek and save the lost. People followed him by the thousands. We would call them the first Jesus generation. And through the years and through the centuries and through the millennia, there have been people that have followed Jesus Christ, Jesus followers, at times called Jesus freaks, at times called Jesus people, at times called Christians, but people who have allowed Jesus Christ to change their lives. I came to Christ during a great move of God during the late 1960s and early 70s called the Jesus Movement. During those days from the West Coast all the way across the country, hundreds of thousands of primarily young people and young adults uh, came to know Christ. I remember uh, keeping up with Arthur Blessed walking from Los Angeles, California to Washington, D.C., carrying a cross and witnessing to people and people being saved all along the way. All kinds of new music sprung out of that. People were being converted and saved who had nothing to do with the church or had been turned off by church. Mostly they had been turned off by dead religion and by predictable religion and by legalism. But, but when that movement hit, there was something alive and fresh that was happening in our lives that, that we could not get over. It could not be contained. We couldn't help but tell somebody about what he had done with us and what he had done to us. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Jesus Christ to take people who are dead in trespasses and sin, who have no hope and give them hope and give them life. Here's what you need to know. Without the cross, we are without hope. The cross gives us hope. Without the cross, we have no hope because we would have to pay the price for our own sins. But because of the cross, God has paid the price for our sin. But not just without the cross are we without hope. Without the resurrection, the cross has no power. If the cross is just the cross and Jesus died, but he did not rise from the grave, then we are of all people without hope. But that resurrection gives us hope. The one thing I love about Sunday and about the Lord's Day, as Paul would call it, is that we celebrate Easter and the resurrection 52 times a year. Every Sunday we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, what he did for us in giving his life for us. I have bet my life on what this book says. And I can tell you this. If heaven was never promised to me, it's been worth serving Jesus and having him in my life. I mean, if this were it, and it's not, there is an eternity. But if this were it, I would serve Jesus and love Jesus just because of the difference that he's made in my life. You see, Christ came to change lives. He did not come to start a religion. He came to start a movement 
A movement of people who were unapologetic about their faith in Jesus Christ, who were unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was the power of God unto salvation. This moment in time has become timeless. And we celebrate what the cross and the resurrection mean to us and what they mean for us because this ripples through time. What a week. I mean, we, we would almost wish we could get in a time machine and transport back 2,000 years to that week of that Palm Sunday and the victory and the hosannas being sung. But even in that, Jesus knew, knew what was coming, that he would be rejected, that he would be put on a cross, that there would be a mock trial. They couldn't find any fault in him, but they killed him anyway. It's the only trial in the world where there's no evidence that this man has done anything wrong. He is without sin, but he's killed anyway. And he was killed because he was willing to die. He said, nobody takes my life. I lay down my life. He determined when he would die. He determined how he would die. The most gruesome and cruel death ever imagined by man was a crucifixion. And Jesus died. And then when he was in the grave, the disciples felt crushed. They felt like it was over. But on the third day, he came out of the grave and revealed a power that changes lives unlike anything else in this world. And all the opposition that he had met from religious people was suddenly given an opportunity to tell them that the Christ is who he says he is. The Easter celebration is a declaration. Now, we live in a world where God gets the last word. God gets the last word. We don't get the last word. They said, we killed him. He's dead. He's in the tomb. God said, I'll overrule that. I'll raise him from the dead. In fact, Peter said in his sermon in, in the book of Acts, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. So I want you to look, if you can, to the book of Colossians. If you're not familiar with the book of Colossians, it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Uh, if you want to look in the index in the front, it'll be in the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's where we'll be. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, where Paul, who is a convert, who has his own testimony, tells a story about the resurrection. And he's writing to tell us what's happened to us and for us through the death of Christ. Colossians 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now just stop right there. What Paul says is Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. He was the God-man, God in the flesh. All the fullness of God. He's not almost God. He is God. All the fullness dwelt in him in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. Now just stop right there. That means until you know Christ, you're incomplete. 
doesn't matter what you have, where you live, how much money you have, how healthy you are. You and I are incomplete until we find our completeness in Christ. He fills the void, the vacuum that's in our heart. There's that God-shaped vacuum inside of us that cannot be filled with anything this world has to offer. It is a vacuum that is filled by Jesus Christ. And he is the head over all rule and authority. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here's what God did. God said, this world is going to lie to you. False religions are going to lie to you. I'm going to come to you in the simplicity of my son and tell you the truth. My son is going to tell you he's the way, the truth, and the life, that there's no other way to God. My son is going to tell you he's the resurrection and the life. My son is going to tell you if you want to know what God is like, look at my son Jesus. And so the cross and the resurrection are historical facts. Why do I say that? Because there are Hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah, about a coming Savior. They are written over the course of hundreds of years by dozens of different writers. Most of them didn't even know each other. But under the inspiration of God, they wrote pictures to say, this is what you'll find. This is what you'll see. This is what will happen when Messiah comes. And so they told that there would be one who would come to save his people from their sin. And one day Jesus showed up. Paul says he showed up in the fullness of time, at the right moment. Now we would have said he should have shown up when we've got social media and we could all take selfies with him and send it to everybody around the world. But he showed up in the fullness of time. Why? Because he wanted it to spread by word of mouth. He wanted us to be the tellers of the story of what he had done for us. And so he showed up and he fulfilled these prophecies. Let me tell you the improbability of one man fulfilling all the prophecies. If you took the state of Texas and you took one silver dollar and you marked a red cross on it and you filled the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. For one person to fulfill all the prophecies would be like you starting to walk through the state of Texas and at some point you decide to reach down and reach into the pile and pick up a silver dollar that has the red cross on it. That's the likelihood of one man fulfilling all the prophecies. That's why we know that he wasn't one who said, I am the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He wasn't a false teacher and a false prophet. He was a true teacher because all of those things came into being. He predicted his death. He predicted his resurrection. He predicted that we would receive a power to live inside of us, to equip us to do what we could not do on our own. That's what Jesus did. And when you read the Bible, you realize that he is either who he said he was or as C.S. Lewis said, he's a liar or a lunatic. Now, let me rule out liar. He, he's not a liar because everything he said came true. 
He's not a lunatic because people don't leave their jobs and their businesses and go all over the world to tell people about Christ for a lunatic. Lewis said he's either Lord or he's liar or he's a lunatic. I would submit to you that he's not a liar. I would submit to you he's not a lunatic. Although he said some extravagant things, I would submit to you that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The cross and the resurrection are a spiritual reality. Back up a page to Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now let me, redemption just means he bought us out of sin. He paid our sin debt. I, I'm in debt to God. I cannot pay that debt back to God. And Jesus shows up and says, this is what he owes. I'll pay it. How did he pay it? He paid it by his death on the cross. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We do not get redemption and the forgiveness of sin by joining a church. We don't get it by being baptized. We get it one way, through the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have this offer to us of salvation. Now I want us to look at two things. I want us to look at the cross and I want us to look at the resurrection. Now these are all found in the book of Colossians. But I'm just going to give you just enough so you can go do a little homework. All right, number one, the realities of the cross. Chapter 1 and verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. You see, we've been reconciled. We were at odds with God. And Christ brought us together. There was this gap. We were on this side and God was on this side and we could not cross that gap. And the bridge to cross that gap is the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's reconciled us to himself. Number one reality of the cross is he died intentionally for your sin and mine. He was not a victim of the system. He died intentionally. He laid down his life. No man can take my life. I give it. He laid down his life. When he went to the cross, he knew his time had come. He had done what the Father told him to do and he laid down his life and he died intentionally for you and for me. Did I deserve it? No. Do you deserve it? No. Did I do anything to merit it? Can I work to earn it? No. He died intentionally for me because I cannot pay the price for my own sin. Secondly, he has all power. Chapter 2 and verse 10. He has all power. Whatever it is that you can't overcome, he can. Whatever it is. He has all power. Listen, if he can get out of a grave, he can help you with your problem. The, the grave is no hindrance to him, and so your problem is not too big for him. Nor does he say, well, you know what, I've, I've spent all my power on everybody in this section over here. Y'all just going to have to figure it out on your own. He has all power. Say the word all. All power. Not some power. He's got all power. So whatever it is you need, God is. God will be what you need in your life to have power over sin in your life. Thirdly, he forgives all our sins. Not just some of our sins. Now here's, here's what 
our old carnal mind and what the devil will say to us. God's not going to forgive you for that. That's too big. You've gone too far. You've messed up too much. Your life is such a mess. No, you can't be fixed. God forgives all our sins. Not part of our sins, all of our sins. Little ones, big ones. You know, you say, well, you know, what about the little bitty lies and the big lies? A lie is a lie. What about the, the, the 10 cents I stole out of my mom's purse when I was four years old or the bank that I robbed? Stealing, stealing. Consequences may be different, but wrong is wrong. And he has all power to forgive all of our sin. If you and I are walking around with guilt and shame today, it's because we've not experienced what it means to walk in the power of God to forgive our sins. We can't fix what's wrong with us. Only he can fix us. He canceled our sin debt by nailing it to the cross. When he was nailed to the cross, our sin was placed on him. Your sin, my sin, the sin of the whole world, past, present, and future. People that have been dead for thousands of years and people yet to be born. Our sin was put on the cross so that we might have life in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, me or you, anybody, anywhere, anytime, believes on him, would not perish but have everlasting life. And he has overcome all that we have to fear. Fear is a driving force in our culture. We're afraid for our kids and the world they're growing up in. We're afraid when our kids leave home. We're afraid about aging. We're afraid about our health. We're afraid about a thousand things. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. You don't have to live in fear. Fear is the realm in which your enemy works. Fear is the realm that people live in that don't know how to live by faith. You say, well, I don't know what the future holds. Well, even if you did, it'd scare you to death, but it doesn't matter if you know who holds the future. You see, God has taken all the things we fear, and what is it that we fear the most? Death. We don't talk about it. We, we think if we talk about death that we're going to die. Well, statistics have proven that one out of one people die. Everybody's going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die one day. Now, when you die, you will either, by your decision of what you do with Jesus Christ, enter into a place called heaven where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more crying there's no separation. It's in the presence of Almighty God. Or if you've rejected his son, you will spend eternity in a place called hell where there's separation. You see, God has an eternity in our hearts. And we were not just made to have a birthday and a death day. We were made to live for all eternity. We are on earth for a season, but after we die, there's eternity, either in heaven or or in hell. And you don't have to fear death because death has been overcome. The Bible says that Jesus has overcome death and hell and the grave. The three things that men fear the most, he has overcome those. 
So what are the realities of the resurrection? It demonstrates the power of God over the grave. The grave couldn't hold him. I mean, this grave was guarded by Roman soldiers who if the body was stolen, if the grave was tampered with, they would lose their lives. There were also Herod's soldiers around. And so, I mean, they're guarding this place. They're watching it. Because the rumor is that Jesus is coming back. And so to make sure that he didn't come back and this rebellious, radical teacher, rabbi, Messiah doesn't come back to bother us anymore, they seal his grave up and they put guards in front of it. No problem. Now, there are a lot of theories. One theory that uh, people have come up with, well, there's, there's the swoon theory. And that says that Jesus just gave out after a while. Now, remember, he's been beaten. He's been lashed 39 times with a whip with metal tips on the end of it. He's been hung on a cross. He's had nothing to eat, nothing to drink. He cannot breathe. His lungs are filling up with fluid because he cannot support himself. He is dying the most agonizing death that anybody can die. And the theory of the swoon theory is, well, he just passed out. They thought he was dead, but he resuscitated and he got out of the grave. The only problem is the stone in front of the grave probably weighed about three tons. I don't see any one physical man, I don't care if he did CrossFit every day, I don't see anybody from the inside pushing that stone out of the way that just resuscitated. And then if he did, there are guards there. Well, then there was a the theory that the disciples stole the body. You're talking about the same disciples that ran for the tall grass when they found out Jesus was going to be crucified and were nowhere in sight when he was crucified because they thought they would be next. They were in fear. No. An angel rolled the stone away. Not so Jesus could get out, but so we could get in and see his body's not there. Now, I've been inside that grave. There's no body there. There's a place where the stone was rolled. The stone has disappeared hundreds of years ago. But I've been inside that grave, and there's no body inside that grave. And if you look at the door on that tomb, it says, He is not here. He is risen. Jesus has power over the grave. Secondly, it affirms that Jesus is the only one with that power. No preacher has that power. No prophet has that power. No religion has that power. Baptism doesn't give you that power. Joining a church doesn't give you that power. Only Jesus has that power. And it's a declaration that he's the son of God. God raised him from the dead. Romans 1 verse 4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So the cross is a personal experience. It's a personal experience. It happens to people. This is not something that happens in osmosis. It happens in people like you and people like me. That personal testimony of Mary of Magdala and millions and billions of others since her is real. Billions of people are gathered all over this planet on every continent today to celebrate one thing, 
the fact that he's alive. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen in people from all walks of life. I've seen people with no money, and I've seen people with more money than they know what to do with give their lives to Jesus Christ because money doesn't buy happiness. And the lack of money can't keep you from happiness. I've seen it in rich and poor, in black and white, in Hispanic, in Asians. I've seen it in all cultures. I've watched it change the lives of people from every imaginable background. Blue collar, white collar, no collar, ring around the collar. I mean, I've seen it all. I've seen it change the educated and the uneducated. I've watched it change people who were just simple laborers, and I've watched it with people with PhDs. I've seen it change men and women and boys and girls. I've, I've watched it change drug addicts and prostitutes and thieves. I've seen what it can do in people's lives, and it's been doing it for centuries. Think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's been married five times, and the, and the man she's living with is not her husband. And Jesus makes a detour and says, I've got to go through Samaria because I've got this woman that I need to talk to. The disciples missed it, but Jesus shows up, and he's sitting by a well, and he starts a conversation with this woman that is an outcast. And she's been married five times. She's living with a guy. And he starts his conversation with her about worship and what it means to worship him. And she leaves and she goes back into her community and she says, let me tell you about this man that I have met because he has told me the things that I have done. And they come back and many believe that day because of her story, because of her testimony. How about the woman caught in the act of adultery? She's brought by these religious leaders that think they're better than her and they're not sinners, but she is. And Jesus kneels down and he begins to write in the dirt. I like what one old preacher said. He was writing the names and the sins of all the people that were accusing her of being a sinner. And they dropped their rocks and they walked away. And he said, go and sin no more. I think about this little girl, Jairus' daughter, who is dead and Jesus raised her from the dead. I think about her going out to the playground and telling her friends, you're not going to believe this. My parents, I was sick and, and Jesus showed up and, and, and I'm alive and, and I got something to eat and I'm, I'm back playing. I think about the leper whose skin is falling off and he's ostracized from community and, and he's pushed out into the outskirts and they had to ring a little bell when they were lepers to let people know that lepers were there so people would avoid them. And all of a sudden they're healed and their skin is brand new. And they start telling people about what Christ has done for them. I think about Matthew the tax collector. I mean, you talk about a bad IRS guy. I mean, Matthew, the tax collector, he was ripping people off. He was getting what the government told him to get, and then he was getting more for himself. And Jesus calls him, and he invites Jesus to come to his house and share with his friends. 
Zacchaeus can't see Jesus in the crowd and he climbs up in a tree and of all the people in the community, Jesus looks up into this sycamore tree and he says, hey, uh, I want to eat supper at your house. I don't know what you're having, but I'm going to eat at your house tonight. You know why? Because Jesus loves people. He didn't come to set up a system. He came to give us salvation. Think about Simon Peter. He's a fisherman making a pretty good living on the Sea of Galilee. That was a, a good middle income business to own. And Jesus walks by and says to Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they leave their boats and they follow him. Or Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul hated Jesus. He hated the cause of Christ. He, he had orders from the hierarchy of the Jewish leadership to go and persecute Christians. Get them, capture them, throw them in jail, kill them. And he's walking down the road thinking he's doing God a favor. And all of a sudden there's a light and he hears a voice. Nobody else hears the voice. Acts chapter 9. Nobody else hears the voice. Paul hears a voice. Why are you persecuting me? You see, Saul, who became Paul, thought he was doing God's work, but he was persecuting the Lord. And so much did Christ change his life that he ended up in prison. He ended up being beaten with a whip. He was left for dead. He had to escape a town by being lowered in a basket across a wall. He was shipwrecked. And he died a martyr's death, probably had his head cut off in a Roman prison in Rome. But everywhere he went, he started a church. He told people about Jesus, and people got saved. And some of those places where he started churches, there are still believers today, 2,000 years later. That's their story. What's your story? What's your testimony? What's, what's your story? Do you have a testimony? I, I didn't ask you if you've joined a church. I didn't ask you if you've been baptized. I, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Tom Rayner, who's president of Lifeway, said, has found that over half the unchurched people in America come to Christ because someone shares with them their personal testimony. This is what he says. They have never read the Bible, and they don't care what Time Magazine or some expert have to say, but they will listen to your story. See, your story is different than mine. My story is different than yours. Now, we all have individual fingerprints. All our fingerprints are different. Our DNA is different. But we all have a story. Now, our stories are different, but we all have one common denominator. If we know Christ, we came to Christ admitting I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need to change the way I live. I throw myself on the mercy of God to save me from my sin because I can't save myself. And we change direction in our life. That's what repentance is. I'm going this way. God gets my attention. I turn around and I go the other way. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, which means we will die a spiritual death and spend eternity in hell. But the gift of God is eternal life in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So let me tell you my story. I was born at a time where if a woman got an abortion, she went to a back alley abortion clinic. My birth mother was an airline stewardess. She got pregnant. We're pretty sure that uh, my dad was uh, in the service and we don't know anything about him. But we know that my birth mom got pregnant. She lied to her family to say that she had training and she had to go off for training. She came to Pascagoula, Mississippi and lived with a friend of hers who is also a stewardess and a flight attendant until she had me. Her doctor was Dr. Robert Cameron. Dr. Cameron's office was next door to the drugstore that my dad worked in. And Dr. Cameron was our family doctor. And my family into which I was adopted, my mother could not have children. And so on December 25th, I was born and I was given to a family that I didn't know anything about. And I didn't know I was adopted until I was almost 40 years old. They took me to church every Sunday. I mean, I got pictures of me in little preschool choir robes, you know, the bow that comes about this big on it. I don't know who ever thought that was cool, but <laughs> I got pictures of me in that. Went to church every Sunday, got a little Bible when I was young, signed by, I still got it, got a Bible, signed by the ladies that changed my diaper when I was in preschool and said they prayed over me every day. So I grew up in the church. I knew how to talk church. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. We, I mean, if the, the church was open, we went. And I was raised in the church, but I didn't know Christ. Now, when I was nine years old, in vacation Bible school, I was talking to my friend Mike Green. Mike Green lived on Buena Vista Boulevard. He lived a block over from me, and, and we played Army together. So, I, you know, I usually tried to talk Mike, and you're the one that gets shot and falls down. I'm the one that gets to, to win here. And so Mike Green and I always had this little competition thing going on. And so I went back, and I said, hey, man, you know, it's the last day of Bible school. He said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get saved today. Well, I never wanted to lose to Mike Green. So I knew he was going down, so I was one row in front of him. So, the, I mean, the minute the preacher said, if you want to be saved, I, man, I got out there and I got down front. I, I even looked over my shoulder and said, <laughs> beat you. <laughs> nobody talked to me. Nobody asked me what decision I'd made. They just, you know, well, he came down, said he wanted to be saved. So they baptized me that night. We went up. Preacher told us what to do, how to hold our breath, and we got baptized. I was, all I was was wet. I was not saved. Nine years old. Getting to middle school and high school. Started doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Started dating people I shouldn't have dated. Started living in ways I shouldn't have lived. Started acting in ways I shouldn't have acted. But when I was at church on Sunday, I cleaned up. Now, I loved my youth minister. My youth minister actually came to my church when I was four years old and stayed until I was in my 20s. So I, I'd known him almost all my life, and I loved to hang out with him. He coached our softball team. And so I remember riding in the car with him one day and saying, James, how come you don't wear one of those funny collars with the little white thing in front? 
He said, why do you think that's what preachers ought to look like? I said, I don't know. Just you don't look like a preacher. You wear plaid shirts. <laughs> and so I was away from God, but the Jesus movement hit, and it began to move across the land. And one night in Panama City, I realized that I had religion, I had been baptized, I went to church, everybody in church knew my name, I knew their names, but I didn't know God. And on a Saturday night in a youth revival in Panama City, I gave my heart to Christ. The verse was this, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And I confess with my mouth that Jesus was Lord. Michael Catt didn't need to be Lord of his life anymore. I'd already messed it up. And I gave my heart and my life to Jesus. I will not tell you for one minute that my life is perfect. I still mess up way too much. I'm a flawed human being saved by the grace of God. I'm not perfect. Just ask the staff that works with me. <laughs> I'm not a perfect person. I've got flaws. I stumble. But I've got a God who has the power to forgive all of my sin. And I don't have to wear the guilt of my sin because he took my sin and my shame on himself. Oh, do I have ups and downs? Yes. Do I have headaches? Yes. Heartaches? Absolutely. Failures, sure. But I have a Savior who is perfect and who loves me just like I am. He did not tell me, clean up and then come to me. He didn't tell me, try harder and then come to me. He just simply said, whosoever will can come.